And as we look this morning, we continue looking through 1 Corinthians. We kind of saw last week that, that for the Christian life, or for the Christian, life is really, it's about receiving the gospel, receiving that gospel message, making Jesus's death and resurrection on behalf of sinners, turning to Christ as a rescuer from sin, responding to the gospel message, receiving that for oneself. For the Christian, life is about receiving the good news of the gospel, and the rest of the Christian life is about living the rest of your life out of response to that good news of the gospel. We saw last week that every day we have the assurance that God is for us. That every day God's grace, the same grace that saved us, we didn't deserve God's working and rescue in our life, but the same grace, the same rescue that God gave us at the point of salvation is the same rescue that he's working out in our lives every day. Is our every day living in response to what Jesus and Jesus alone has done for us? That's what life is all about for the Christian. Receiving the gospel and living out of response to the gospel. But there's one main difficulty in the Christian life. There are lots and lots of distractions, aren't there? I've, I've, I've mentioned many of these in the past because these are things that are common to all of us, but there are job distractions. Whether that be distractions for the good or the worse. There are health distractions. There are financial distractions. There are relationship distractions. You know what they say of parents, right? Um, from, from zero to 12, it, it's the busyness of parenting, uh, of making sure that, that, your, that your child is, is sleeping through the night and is fed and you're trying to, 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 to raise them. And then 13 to 18 is a whole new type of busyness, isn't it? Stress of what direction are they going with this newfound freedom that they are finding. There is school distraction. Making the good grades. What does my future hold? There is status distraction. What are others thinking of me? That never goes away. Peer pressure is a birth to death distraction. There are trials that the Lord allows us to go through and, and they tend to be unhelpful distractions at times. There are hurts and offenses that come into our life. All of these things are simply realities of living in a broken world. And what really makes these, these situations and these things that I've listed, and you can fill in anything I didn't mention in your own mind, what makes these things so difficult is not 
that the categories I talked about don't hold weight in life. These are important things in life, right? The difficulty lies in that these things that I mentioned, or whatever you're, you're thinking of right now, it's not that they don't hold weight, but the difficulty is they take an undue hold in our hearts. And there's a big difference between those things. We deal with a lot of serious things in, in life that are, are heavy things, significant things. But because we're living in a broken world and because we are broken people, these things often take an undue hold upon our hearts. You see, there are always things, there are always people, there are always feelings that are competing for our heart affections. That are competing for that number one place of devotion in our hearts. And we have to take note that, that the Christians here in Corinth were struggling with a major heart distraction. And this major heart distraction wasn't meant to make them say, woe is me, there's no hope. Because we just took two weeks to look at the hope that these Corinthian believers had. A hope that could not be taken away. But that did not negate the fact that they dealt with life distractions. And these things were taking an undue hold upon their heart and they were moving them away from Jesus being the centerpiece of their devotion. You see, for the Corinthians, their desire for standing or prestige or honor and their desire for recognition within the church and in society. They were causing these believers to settle for a false version of Christianity and church life. And don't we see this today? The temptation for us is to know the hope that we, ha that we have that we have been purchased and redeemed by Jesus. That God's love and his favor is upon us. And yet over time we move that to the side. And we start following the values that are totally opposite to the one and only true hope that we have. And what happens is we carry that into our Christian life and without even knowing it, we are settling for a false version of Christianity in our own lives and that plays itself out into life lived in the church. You see, we can't let this happen in our Christian lives and in our church. And that's why we are looking at this series, Back to Basics. 
Verses 1 to 9 showed us that the basics is that the Christian life is all about the gospel, receiving the good news of what Jesus has done for us, and the rest of life living in response to what Jesus has done for us. It's all about the gospel. And at the heels of this truth that we are to live in light of, of the love, the grace that Jesus has poured out on us is this truth that the gospel, the good news, calls us to live with an undivided heart. That's the title of this morning, An Undivided Heart. You see, we must strive to cling to what really matters. We must, as Christians, resist the temptation to live with a divided heart. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6? Do you remember? He tells his followers, no one can serve, how many masters? Two. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln that came up with the idea that a house divided against itself cannot stand. This is the, the, the same truth that, that Jesus mentioned. We can't serve two masters. Yet how many of us, we, we think that we are the footnote there to that verse. No one can serve two masters. Footnote, except me. May not be true of everybody else, but I can. And we wonder what is lacking in our Christian life. You see, in our passage that we are going to study this week and next, we're going to see that a byproduct of a divided heart is disunity. And thereby, a byproduct of a divided heart is disunity, and as we will see in verse 17 The outworking of this disunity is a weakening of the power of the gospel. A short-circuiting of the gospel doing its full work of transformation in our hearts, making us more like Christ. We have to, in our Christian life, always be on guard against the temptation to live with a divided heart. Many times this divided heart, and every time, it starts out as a very private matter. It's between us and God. And we try to mask this divided heart that that we can look really good in church. And we can look really wise and godly to our church friends. But we know that there's a division there. And guess what happens when that division starts to grow and take root and we live with this divided heart? It is not long until the dividedness of our heart springs out in our home, with our spouse, with our kids. Before you know it, it starts going and creeping into the church. That is what we have to be on guard with. That is what we are going to look at in verses 10 to 17. We're going to start out this morning just looking at the first 
truth and introducing the second truth that we have to realize there are three characteristics of an, un, of an undivided heart that we must follow. That we must seek with God's help to pursue. We're going to see this morning in verse 10 that an undivided heart, it delights in unity. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning that you would speak as only you can speak. Lord, it's not about me. It's not about even our own selves, God. It is about the power of your word. It is about the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would do just that in our lives. God, I pray that you would give gospel hope. Remind us our security is in you and in nothing else. God, I pray that, that you would bring gospel conviction. Show us, Lord, where we are not living in response to what you have done for us. And we are not living in reliance of your strength. Lord, I pray that you would restore where cracks of disunity may be evident or may even just be starting, whether that's in the home, whether that's in the church, or whether that's right now just individually. Lord, be at work in our assembly today. In Jesus' name, amen. We must cling to what truly matters. We must not forget the basics of the Christian life. In a reality of the centrality of Jesus in our lives will cause us to have a heart devotion to him and an undivided heart. If you want to know how that is evidenced in one's life, it is found in this characteristic of unity. You see, true unity is only found in Christ. It's only found in Christ. In verse 10, we see the whole basis for Paul's appeal, for his exhortation, for his instruction to the church. Verse 10 starts the actual body of Paul's letter. Verses 1 to 9 gives the introduction. And verse 10, after giving this gospel hope, and listen, everything I'm going to say is couched in the reality of Jesus, and we're going to keep going back to it. Paul shows. He says in verse 10, because of all of this, I appeal to you, brothers. You see, the basis of Paul's instruction is that he is writing to brothers, to sisters. There is a unity here that should be inherent within the church because they are brothers and sisters. This is not a law-based instruction that we often give our own children. Do this. Why? It doesn't matter. Just do it. That's not, what, that's not how Paul, that's not how the Bible gives instruction. I appeal to you, brothers. The very word brothers 
is a reminder that they are to conform their behavior to the good news of the gospel, not to allow their behavior to be conformed to culture, to the values of society, to the dog-eat-dog, climb-up-the-ladder, let's not, let's not worry about you as long as I'm exalted mentality. I appeal to you, brothers, not by Paul's own authority, but by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a command from Jesus. Verse 2 showed us that they were saved just like everyone else because they called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we see unity, both their Lord and ours. And now in verse 10, you claim to be to profess Jesus. If you claim to, prof- to profess Jesus, this is what your life should look like. A church that claims that Jesus has first place, that he is exalted in the church, that he is preeminent like Colossians says, this is what it should look like. Isn't it amazing the things that churches can argue about? The color of the carpet. You you know all the, the familiar analogies. The color of the carpet, the style of music, the um, whatever it is, the taste of the coffee, whether it's Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. Most, most church coffee, I've found, doesn't quite reach either of those expectations. <laughs> No offense to those who make it. It's, it's the coffee beans that make the difference. Unless you go to the Hannah Waltz home, then the makers do kind of make a difference. <laughs> but those things are, are so silly, and I would dare say that is not the reason that churches split or have dysfunction. There's always a, a deeper root issue than some of these surfacy issues. But If a church claims to exalt Christ and to be all about Christ, then there should be a reality of unity. It's amazing to me that you don't hear many times about churches that that, that they they, they split because of doctrine. Or because there's liberalism or values of the culture coming into the church. No, nine times out of ten, it's these petty issues that don't matter. You see, we can't claim that Jesus is is preeminent, that he's first place in the church. If our own values and opinions state otherwise... So let's take some time this morning to look at the content of Paul's instruction. Because in verse 10, what he really does is he sets up what he's going to say in the following verses. The content of Paul's instruction, there's really four aspects of this that we're going to look at. This is a call to unity, first of all. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What? that all of you agree. This is a call to unity. 
that all of you agree. Literally, if you were to read this uh, in the original languages, it would say that you all say the same thing. This is the opposite of what we see going on. Look at verse 12. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. Their lips was not the name of Jesus. It was these other things. It's it's the opposite of what we read later in chapter 3 and verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, look at that last question. Are you not being merely human? You may say, yeah, of course we're human. That's not, Paul's not saying, are you an alien? Are you a robot? He's saying, are you not living after the ways of your flesh? When you start following leaders or personalities or preferences that you have, and that I have, are we not living according to the old ways of life that, don't, that no longer characterize us as a Christian? This is a call to unity that all of you agree. What's the outworking of this unity? It's not only a call to unity, but this is a specific type of unity. It's a unity vo- void of division. Because it says here, that there be no divisions among you. That word divisions, it's it's really an interesting word. It's used in the book of John of different people's reactions to Jesus' teaching and actions. That they were arguing about who Jesus is. And it says, there was a division among the people. Even more interesting, and I think in in the context of what Paul's talking about in the church, this word division is used in in Matthew 9 and in Mark 2 of a tear in a garment. That garment was still complete. How many of you have ever put on a shirt or another article of clothing and you found a hole in it? Anybody? It's, It's quite common, right? Now, how many of you would go to your closet, and if there was a shirt that was shredded in two or three, would ever be tempted to put that on in the three pieces and look in the mirror and say, oh, my shirt, I can't wear this. Does that make sense? No. Because uh, this word division, it is not referring to that there are obvious parts. There's, there's a broken piece over here, a broken piece over here, a broken piece over here. No, it's talking about there are cracks. There are tears. That is weakening the structure of whatever it is that those cracks or tears are found in. You see, that is how disunity and division starts. It's not that the whole thing becomes shattered. It's not that the rock is broken, but it is weakened. Divorces don't start overnight. There is a weakening. There are tears, and those tears do not become addressed. And those individuals' hearts continue to move farther away from truth. 
until those divisions are no longer repairable. That is the type of division that Paul is speaking about. You see, there can be an appearance of unity without true unity. Just like you can f- see that shirt in your closet, and man, it's clean, you know, the collar's clean, uh, there's no stains on it, but then you put it on and you find a hole in it. Our lives, our homes, our churches can have an appearance of unity, but not true unity. You see, we can agree about a lot of things, but unless the foundation is agreed upon that this is all about Christ, this is not about us, then the foundation is shaky. There can be cracks. Unless our homes are built upon the foundation of Jesus, our foundation is faulty. It's amazing to me that many times people can laugh and joke and have a good time with each other, but then we all have a temptation that we can then talk behind those individuals' backs. The very person that we were jovial with. Many times, rather than going to the person, we can go to other people. All of those things are cracks of disunity, of division. And Paul says that according to our calling as brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus, whom we claim as Lord, we are to have unity of mind, a unity that's void of division, or excuse me, a, 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 a unity, a call to unity, a unity void of division, and then it says, not only should there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind. United in mind. You know what's really funny is that, name, that word united, it's used elsewhere in the Gospels of the disciples mending their nets. So when he talks about divisions, you have the idea of a tear. But now when he's talking about being united, here's the solution. Uh, It's used of, of fixing, repairing that which is divided. That we are to be united in the same mind. Now you may say, well, Pastor Adam, what does that even mean? To be united in the same mind. Does it mean I have to think like the other person? Does it mean I have to agree in all of these areas with the other person? If you look at chapter 2 and verse 16, we have an example of what this means. Paul is making a contrast uh, between the natural person that is not a believer. They don't have the Spirit of God living in their hearts. And, And those who are believers that do have God's Spirit living in their hearts. And look at what it says. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have what? 
the mind of Christ. What does it mean to be of unity in mind with one another? It doesn't mean we think the same thoughts or we agree uh, on all of the the, the secondary issues or non-important issues. It means that we are both seeking to walk with the mind of Christ. You may say, okay, Adam, well, that helps me some. But what does the mind of Christ look like? Do you remember where Colossians 3 and verse 1 says that we are to set our mind, if we are seated with Christ, we are to set our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. You see, the mind of Christ is the mind that lives consciously of our own inadequacies of Jesus's perfection for me, his sufficiency for every day of life, that I am free to serve him because he freely saved me. And I can put him above everything else. I can seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, not worrying about all the other things because he will give me what I truly need. His agenda is what sets the tone of my life. That's living in light of the mind of Christ. You see, when we're saved, when we have the Holy Spirit, we no longer should be dominated by the thinking and ways that are controlled by the flesh. There's still that battle, and it's an up and down battle. But man, our heart of hearts, even in our worst moments as Christians, like Romans 7 says, Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, the things I want to do, I don't. But what does he then turn to? He says, but there is Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1. No condemnation in the flesh because of Jesus we have been given peace with God. That is living with the mind of Christ. And when we realize how much we've been forgiven, when we start realizing how little we are in comparison to the greatness of God, yet he loved us unconditionally, and he is working out that salvation in our life every day, even in our failures, somehow he is working that out to keep doing the work he's doing in us. Man, doesn't it make some of those things we get preoccupied with seem a little bit more insignificant? I mean, I know for myself, I don't know about you, but you know when it's easiest for me to lash out at home? The easiest it's for me to get frustrated or not to get my way and get mad? You know when that's the easiest? When I find myself giving in to the flesh. When I've forgotten the basics of my inadequacy in Jesus' complete perfection. We are to be united in mind. And then it says, 
last of all, united in judgment, the same judgment. What does this word judgment mean? Is it talking about you are somehow the judge and jury? No. Again, following up with, these, with what he said about unity of mind, it's the, it has the idea of your understanding or your way of thinking, your opinions, your thought processes. There is a unity there. Paul uses this word several times in First and Second Corinthians talking about, he says, my judgment in the matter is this. This is what I am persuaded of. We can be persuaded about a lot of things, can't we? But what we are to be persuaded of is that it is Jesus above everything else. It is His agenda. It is His way. It is His prospering. It's not my own opinions and thoughts and and way of life. But what unity does not mean is that true unity does not mean uniformity. Many times, people can give off the impression, let's have unity agree with me. And we can all get along. <laughs> um, what's that phrase? You see it sometimes in, in uh, like truck stop, gas stations or whatever. I'm always something as long as everybody agrees with me. I forget. It was clean. <laughs> I have to qualify that talking about truck stops. <laughs> but true unity does not mean uniformity. The, the blessed thing about the church is that God has called people from all sorts of different backgrounds, walks of life. And, and, and maybe in, in, in rural PA, we don't experience this as much, uh, just, uh, but different races, different cultures, and he has unified them under one single person. Jesus. I mean, I mean, man, if you go to the Y, there's generally a certain type of people that go to the, I mean, is that true? That go to the Y? Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, people that, that care or at least want to appear like they care about their health and exercise, right? If you go to a hunting club, what's the commonality? Everybody loves hunting. If you have a vehicle club, I don't know, a Jeep club, everybody probably likes Jeeps. And, and with that comes kind of the same type of, of, of person. And, but the church is totally different. You have people from all walks of life, all different personalities, all different giftings. that find a bond in Christ. I like what, what 
two individuals have said, I have the overhead uh, on the screen, unity in a local church cannot be based on race, class, or social or economic circumstances. The only common factor in otherwise diverse Christian congregations such as Corinth in every member uh, is every member's relation to Christ. So we see that if there is disunity in the church, somewhere along the line, individuals within that church who comprise the church body have lost sight of the reality of the everyday gospel and have moved away from Jesus being the centerpiece. True unity does not mean uniformity, but true unity does mean an allegiance. An allegiance to Jesus Christ. That boy, we are on the same mission. Because Christ has revealed what that mission is. We are on the same page that we want to lift high Jesus and not put the focus on self. We're on a mission that we want to be gospel witnesses in our community. There may be a lot, just as we will continue to read in Corinth, that there were disagreements about, but that foundation of the gospel and of Christ at the center is crucial. Is that your heart this morning? Is your heart in the reality that you are living with an undivided heart, is it displayed in your everyday life in the unity that surrounds you? The unity of your own quiet time with the Lord, does that exist? That you say, God, thank you that you have brought unity to me. You have reconciled me through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to grow in my relationship with you. I want to spend the rest of my days uncovering the depth of your love, of your grace, of your mercy that the Bible says was lavished upon me. That's why I have a love for Scripture. It's not to simply know things. It is that the, the deeper we can get into God's Word, the more our heart can be consumed with a love for what God has done for us, for me. Is your unity then overflowing? That unity of relationship with God that you are living in light of, is that then overflowing to your interactions with your spouse and kids? For you're not married with those relationships that God has given you. Is it overflowing into your work relationships, even with those people that kind of think you are the oddball because of what you do or don't do? 
And is it manifested in the church in which you worship? The overflow of the gospel is evident to those around you. Mm -hmm.